For those who may not know, my name's Ryan. I am the pastoral intern here, and True Lo- uh, Pastor Jimmy and the elders have allowed me and given me the privilege of sharing the word this morning. And I'm very excited to do so because we'll be in a passage that touches on a topic that rela- of, about the church that's very dear to me. So if you've been with us for at least a few weeks now, you may have picked up on a certain pattern, a pattern that's not going to surprise you when I ask you to turn to Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4, looking at verse 2 and 3. And for those who still have one of those paper Bibles, and it'll take a moment, I'm going to go ahead and share an article I found that ties in really well with what we're talking about this morning. The snippets I'm going to read are from a Christian Post article from the guy who was at least a few years ago president of Lifeway, and he was sharing the 25 craziest reasons he had heard of a church either arguing or arguing and even splitting over. His first point was he was talking about an argument over the appropriate length of a worship pastor's beard that a church had taken a moment to argue about. The next was some church member had left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. This grew, and the whole church split over it. Yeah, There's a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. And I did, that was me too. I did pause before I reacted and tried to figure out if I wanted to laugh at this one or not, because at least the church was thinking ahead, but they had two very different goals going on. One involving growth and the other one involving an end, it seemed. There was a, one of the points was a 45-minute heated argument over the type of file cabinet to purchase for the church. Was it to be black or brown, two, three, or four drawers? There is a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. The worship leader seemed to be on a common topic here. There was a business meeting argument about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It got heated enough to need two meetings to resolve. And then there were two different accounts of churches who had dared to change the brand of coffee they used. One church had went from one type of coffee to a stronger type of coffee, and it resulted in members leaving to join another church. Now, we laugh and think these are absurd, and they absolutely are. But at the end of today, I want us to walk away and realize this is serious too. There's a lot of topics that our passage is going to address that we could talk about, but really I want to just summarize our time together with asking us all to reflect on the question, does the world know that I follow Christ by how I love other Christians? Just simply that. Because it will also address all of our follow-up questions, all of the little details. It covers so much. Now, allow me to take a moment to read our passage starting here in chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintache to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When I was first assigned this passage, I was a little surprised. Joy and I, a few weeks before this, before Pastor Jimmy had offered to let me preach, we had read through Philippians, and there happened to have been a small section where I read through it, I was like, how would you ever preach this passage? And you're always laughing, as I, th- I guess you figured out the punchline already. Here we are. Pastor Jimmy called, and maybe I should preface this with, there's a proverb that says that you should figure out what the terms of something are before you agree to them. 
And so Pastor Jimmy said, would you like to preach? I was like, absolutely. And then he let me know it's going to be this passage. And I do say this jokingly. It's an absolute privilege to get to preach this because after taking the time figuring out what are the truths here that we're supposed to understand, what are the truths that, can trans- that God would transform us and call us to live by, getting to study and figure that out has been a blessing, and I hope you find this to be a blessing this morning too. Now, I want us to think a little bit about some of the background going on in this passage. We've got Yodi and Sintache, but before we talk about them, let's talk about the guy who's written this book, Paul. We all know a little bit about Paul, and we know about Paul's past. Before he was a Christian, what was his favorite hobby? What was his favorite pastime? Some of you all like fishing or hunting or sports or something like that. Paul's favorite pastime was persecuting the church, trying to drive it to extinction. And so if there was someone who knew how to terminate a church, Paul was going to be the one who had an idea. And I think that's why when we look at this epistle and we look at all of Paul's other writings, you see these encouragements, these admonitions, these big pushes for a church to always to remain firm in Christ, to remain united together in faith. And that's what we've seen so far in Philippians. We see over and over these calls of unity. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, and we see the antithesis. We see the opposite of this being lived out. And Paul, I believe he's calling us to all these types of, he's being so forceful about living in unity, and he's calling these two women to live together because we're going to see it more in a minute, but the threats to the church that are genuine, they're not external ones. Those are just annoyances. The real threat to the church come from, uh, real church threats to the church, they come from the inside. Now, to, I'd like to go back a page or two in Philippians and just remind us of a few verses, some old terrain that we've covered already. So if we can turn back to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. And so we see the style of the way Paul's talking to them. It's kind of this, well, let me go ahead and read verse 3 as I see it up there because I think that'll help with our point. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. We see Paul talking to the church as a whole unit. We don't see Paul talking to this person, then switching over, talking here. He's talking to everyone, assuming that there's a bond of unity. And then once we get to uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, we'll see Paul even admonishing, pushing, encouraging, telling us to be unified. Paul says, how do you complete Paul's joy? He says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other esteem others better than himself. Yeah. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So as we look at our passage going on, we see Paul's not talking to the church as a, collected, a collection of individuals, but a unified group, and he's encouraging them to pursue the same mind, to pursue the same purpose. And so, once we get to chapter 4, and verse 2 and 3, I think it helps us add context to it. Because we see Paul, he's not being worried about being in prison. So Paul's got this long list of things he could be worried about. He's rotting away in some dungeon somewhere. And what's he upset with? What, he, what is he concerned about? The Philippians. He's concerned about them. About them maintaining peace with one another. Living out who Christ has called and enabled them to be. Having that peace and unity, that brotherliness. He says that that's even what's going to complete his joy, not him being released, not him being set free early or getting a better dinner that, doesn't, that involves a little less stale bread and 
moldy whatever else he would get to eat. Instead, his complete joy happens to be in just the Philippians living in peace with one another, having the same mind, that being united by Christ. Now, let's look at these two women, Yodia and Sintache. Let's see what kind of people we can gather that they are from looking at this passage. Now, I entreat Yodia and Sintache to agree in the Lord, uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, and they are in the book of life. So those are a few parts of the verses going on that tell us a little bit about them. So first off, we see from these women, they're not like uh, what's been going on with Philippians chapter 3, what we've been studying the last two weeks in this letter. The last two weeks we've been talking about false teachers in the church and how they can spread and create strife and trouble in the church, how they can try to lead people astray. That's not who Yodia and Sintache are. They're not a couple of Osteens trying to sell heresy and bleach teeth. They're genuine, true believers. It says so right there that they have labored together for the gospel. God has been building their king, his kingdom through them. It's incredible. And if you're still wondering, does that mean they're Christian or not? It's followed up with, and they're in the book of life together, which seems like a parental subtle reminder of way where Paul's kind of telling them, you should get, learn to get along now. You're spending eternity together. So we see two believers can live in disunity, can live against each other and at odds with each other. Instead of standing firm with one another, they can stand against each other. So is that a problem for our church this morning? Could we read these verses, but instead of Sintache and Yodia, put names that I can actually pronounce in there? Like, could I read it? I entreat Ryan and I entreat the rest of True Life to agree in the Lord. And I use my name to be nice but could you put your name there? And could you put in the first blank and put someone else's name who goes here in the second blank? Maybe you could put it as a Christian co-worker or another brother or sister in Christ that you find that you're living at war with. I would like us to take a moment to back up to chapter 4, verse 1. It's a passage that we would have touched on the last couple of weeks, but I believe it says something that helps us understand our relationship to one another in Christ too. Chapter uh, verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you're like me, you pay attention to the phrase stand firm, and you might think of that picture of George Washington as he's going across the Potomac River, assuming I pronounced that right, as he's standing there above the crowd looking ahead. You look at him, you're like, that's a man who's standing firm. He's resolved, he's confident. And I don't think that's exactly what this verse is describing. So when we think of standing firm, I think of now, I think of Ephesians chapter 6, when we think of the armor of Christ, that one of the main reasons we're standing up, not because of any of our own muscles or anything inside of us, but the armor of God keeping us standing. Secondly, let's look back at this verse that I just read to us. It says, therefore, my brothers, you're not standing by yourself, you're standing with one another. And so those people that you are standing against are the ones that you should be standing firm with because you need them. The church, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but we're one body. We depend upon each other. We thrive together. So if we, in the last service, I used an analogy thinking of a nature documentary and no one told me it was a bad idea, so I'll do it again just in case it works. But if you're like me, uh... First off, you hate television, but if you have to watch television, it's going to be a nature documentary or something like that, seeing something about creation that's cool. And 
If you've seen anything about penguins, you know that they live in Antarctica, it's frozen. If you're out there by yourself, you freeze to death. It's not cool. It's, actually, it's very cool. It's the problem. And so you have these group of penguins, and what they do is they'll huddle together during the Antarctic winter to try to stay warm. And at times, certain penguins will stand at the outside of the ring and take on the blizzard's blast. And then at another point, another penguin will step out behind that one and take on the blast so that the penguin can work its way to the middle and get warmed back up. And so those penguins are very arguably standing firm, and they're standing together, because if they stand apart, they're going to freeze. So in a weird way, we can compare ourselves to penguins this morning and how we should stand firm. I appreciate you all. I appreciate a first service, too, because if we were doing some kind of self-help talk, I'd be talking about how you are lions, you're strong, courageous, and ferocious, but instead we're the church, and so we want to be honest with who we are and who we're supposed to, what the word of the mirror of the word of the, yeah, what the word shows us to be, and so I show, say that we're like penguins, and you're like, amen. <laughs> so, Let's move on to our next question. Why is disunity between believers a problem for the church? First, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, that threats to the church, I believe, are internal, not external. I believe that when we look at Scripture, when we look at threats that are genuinely possible, to, that are genuinely likely to tear down a church, they're not outside ones. We think of persecution, and then Acts 8 shows what happens when the church is persecuted. The church gets bigger. It flourishes. It thrives. History shows us what happens when the church is tried to be, when people try to drive the church to extinction. Rome starts, instead of just persecuting Christians, they just try to drive them to extinction and crucifies them right and left, sets them on fire to use as lighting for their parties at night. The church still thrives and grows. Plagues happen throughout history. The church is the first to run and help out the people in need. The church still thrives. No matter what, all the external storms that happens, the church does fine. So, when Satan attacks the church, the real threat is from the inside, and it's the cooperation and unity of a church I believe he attacks first. That's why we see over and over in all these epistles uh, how Paul calls us to live unified, to live together. When we look at Revelation, we look at churches that have their light being threatened as going out, we do see some persecution going on, but the real threats those churches have are from the false teachers trying to divide and break the church from inside, from them losing the love, their love for Christ, and so on. We see all their threats are internal. So, I believe breaking apart churches and families, Satan's primary method of attacking. And when we read about Satan, we read about him being like the roaring lion on the prowl, ready to attack someone, looking for whom he can devour. And so let's think about getting to our nature documentary. How does a lion go about attacking? Does it round up the gazelles and get them all packed together and then pounce? No, it's going to get trampled if it does that. It doesn't try to keep the body of gazelles, the body of its prey, united. It tries to create friction. It tries to get them running and splitting into different groups until the gazelles are running every which way, and they're running as much from each other at this point as they are running from the lion. And at that point, they're easy prey just like I believe it can be for the church. And I wanted to give another scriptural example, going back to the Old Testament. Think about how the first sin happened. Eve didn't just walk up to the tree and bite some fruit and hand it to Adam. Like, that would be a summary, but it would be a very incorrect summary. How did the first sin happen? Satan sows discord. We see disunity in the first family. We see a husband and wife not operating in the way that God had enabled and called them to. And then 
they were ready and prone and able to sin from that disunity. Let's jump ahead to 1 Timothy 6, and I'll read verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing, uh, sorry, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, pay attention to those words, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So, when we read about false teachers like we discussed last week, what was their purpose? We saw disunity at the heart of what they were trying to do, trying to divide people from the gospel and from each other. And at this point, you may be noticing, you walked in, you glanced behind the coffee bar, you're looking right and left, and you're rising. I've not seen any Benny Hens. I've not seen any false teachers. You're listening to me, and you're still trying to wait. He's like, I don't know how solid he is, but he's at least not a false teacher. And so you're looking, and there's no false teachers here. And yet, when we look at Philippians chapter 4, and we read about Yodi and Sintiche, they weren't false teachers either. They were two genuine believers. And yet... Their arguments were just as bad as if a false teacher, or a church, two church members arguing is just as bad as a false teacher walking in. Satan may divide with the sword when he can, but I believe it's the dull butter knife we need to watch out for. Think about our earlier examples with the Lifeway article I was reading, or the guy who wrote the Lifeway, from Lifeway who wrote that article. No one was, none of those points I read were about false teachings. They were arguments over piano benches and rug colors and stuff like that. And yet those divisions were just as grand as if a false teacher had walked in and proclaimed a different gospel because the result was the same, the church that was destroyed and disunified. Second, I think when two church members disagree and aren't getting along, that is subtle. The wolf in sheep's clothing, the false teacher, that's blatant. Those are we can notice those by their fruit. But the two girls in the middle school class on Wednesday night who aren't getting along, we don't notice that right away. We just see that disunity and it slowly grows to where certain more and more people are pulled in, those scars slowly heal, and we just don't notice this going on until that vase shatters into a hundred pieces. So think that's where we see it's dangerous. Second problem that disunity causes relates to how the church is called one body. The church is supposed to be so cooperative, so intertwined. The members are supposed to be so dependent upon one another that when the, the church is able to call itself a body, and so let's think about that for a minute. What happens if you have a part of your body, a member of your body, not functioning like it should? In anatomy or medicine, you'd call that a disease. And so we need to realize that when two church members aren't getting along, when they're not living out the ministry that God has called them to as a result, suddenly we're talking about a disease, a body that's being diseased. And we're not talking about just any body, we're talking about the church. The church is unable to be all it's called to be. Second, or third, disunity affects our message. First, it makes us a lot like the world. How does the world handle disunity? with more disunity, right? You have two governments that don't get along. What's the plan? Let's figure out how to nuke the other guys. Let's figure out how to win this battle. It's war. You have two other groups of people, and naturally it's still the solution to disunity or troubles, more disunity and more trouble. You take that all the way down to a family, and what happens when you have two brothers who don't get along? 
They try to rip it rips the whole family apart. So when we act in disunity, we're not living out the fact that God has called and made us something different, made us something new. He has restored our relationship with Him, which should cause us to live in unity and peace with other believers. That should be our natural way of living. The church, it shouldn't be a storm, it should be a refuge. Second, of how disunity affects our gospel message, we find in Jesus' words in John chapter 13, 35. And many of us, I hope, even have this one memorized. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When I was a new Christian here at True Life, this was one of the first verses I was given and told to memorize. And at the time, I just paid attention to the last part. If you have love for one another. But at some point, I was pushed to at least read the whole context of this verse and read the point of this verse. And, but, and so the first part specifies something very important for us to see. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. So yes, we're commanded to love one another. And Jesus says that you're to love one another, and that is to be your primary ex- uh, way of witnessing to the world. Our primary way of witnessing to the world isn't knocking on doors. It's how do you do other people know that you love other Christians? Do they see that in your life? We see that our witnessing starts there. So I hope we're starting to see why true life member A and true life member B not getting along is a very big issue, not just for the two of them, but an issue for our whole church. So what causes disunity among believers? And so I'll take a drink, which will give us a nice dramatic pause as you think of answers. I have not figured out how Pastor Jimmy's able to sneak drinks in and still keep talking. Years of experience, that's the answer. I just have to figure out how to apply that without the years of experience. <laughs> so, what causes disunity among believers? First off, is that we're not taking pride from our old life off. That we're still, as we're not going into our sanctification like we should. There's still parts of our old life that still remain, and it's pride. And instead of taking it off, we've just found new ways to direct it. One of the ways we often see this is that we take our pride and we just make it turn into something very self-righteous. And instead of making disciples of Christ, we start trying to make disciples of ourselves, which I fully agree that and believe it's biblical that we should try to get people to follow us, but it's because we're following Christ, not just getting someone to follow us to be like us because... I'm not trying to get anyone to be like me. I'm not even trying to be like me. I'm trying to be like Christ. And I hope that's everyone's goal. Like, and we see that Yodia and Sintichet, they're called to agree in the Lord. But look in verse 2 and 3. Look at what they were arguing about. It doesn't say. And I think that's very important because if Paul didn't know his audience, at least the Holy Spirit did. And if he had said that they were arguing about the type of wafers used for communion or something like that, that's going to be what we would focus on too, isn't it? We would try to make an argument about that instead of missing the point that we shouldn't be seeking to fight, we should be seeking to agree in the Lord. So, what did the argument look like then? I'm not sure. I know how it looks today, though. It's us posting things that may even be true on Facebook about other Christians, about other ministries, about other people inside of the very church that we attend. Not trying to build them up, not trying to edify them, but trying to tear the other person down. And that being it, trying to make ourselves look nice, trying to make someone else look like less. You make my Facebook post sound so evil, Ryan. Huh. Yeah. 
Think about, or maybe it comes across in how we talk about others, how we talk about other Christians, because we see one example of what I'm about to share even happening against Paul, where we are trying to maybe get, be liked by someone. Maybe we're trying to be liked by the world, so we walk up to someone else, and they're like, I can't believe the church is like that. And instead of defending our brother and sister, you're like, well, I can't believe they're like that either, but you know, I'm different, trying to still and make a couple of those woke points or cool points, which with the world's not going to work. If you want to seem cool to them, you have to completely abandon Christ. Secondly, we may try to make ourselves look cool with other Christians by putting down this other third group of Christians, by just saying something along the lines of, if people just thought like I did or handled things like I did, we would get through this issue right away. We'd have so many disciples, more disciples, more people would be saved, the church would be bigger, and yada, yada, yada. And that's something that we need to watch out for. It seems like it could be righteous, but really it's just pride forming its way and saying something different. And it's creating disunity, creating arguments. So, to summarize, dissension and disunity are often a show of self-pride and an identity made in self rather than Christ. Are you wanting people to look like you or look, want th wanting them to look like Christ? Third, disunity in churches is often caused by handling beliefs wrongly. Disunity is caused by not agreeing in the Lord. We see Yodia and Sintache called to agree in the Lord together. And so, let's ask a few questions. How do we handle differences when we don't get along with another Christian? Now, when we look at the passage, I do not think that Yodia and Sintache's argument is doctrinal. And the reason I do not think that is we don't, if it was doctrinal, I believe Paul would have addressed it. I believe it's some other matter. They had a difference of opinion that didn't matter on something else. So how do we handle important differences about doctrine? So let's remind ourselves and just kind of review some things that Pastor Jimmy's touched on in the past about remembering how we think of doctrine. We think of doctrine as, remember the category of primary, secondary, tertiary? that the men's college group like to call uh, primary, secondary, and teriyaki. It makes sense to them. Is primary, these are the doctrines where you figure out if someone's a Christian or not. That's someone like, do you agree that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life? Or is Jesus just one path to salvation? That would be a primary doctrine to argue about. And so those are the important ones where you figure out is that person a believer or not? And someone tells you something that is a primary doctrine issue, that's one to talk to them about, to address with. But how do we want to address it? Remember, we don't want to do it to make ourselves look better. We want it for this person's own good. We want it for their edification. And so it's not a punch to the gut with our words to them. It's pulling them aside like it's pulling a Priscilla and Aquila and trying to share the real gospel with them. And then after primary doctrine, we have secondary doctrine. These are the ones that help you figure out you, that you resolve if you're in the same church or not. Like our church, we agree on baptism. So if someone in here starts talking about infant baptism or something that doesn't involve full immersion with baptism, that's something to pull aside and talk to them about. Maybe the Presbyterian down the street who agrees in the Lord and has a tr uh, you listen to their testimony, you're like, yeah, that's a solid believer. We don't want to necessarily argue with them, even though we have a different scriptural position on baptism with them. We want to agree in the Lord with them. It's not until they come to our church that we need to talk about it. Like, to give you an example of my own life, I know that I'm not exactly the high-demand preacher at the moment. I'm more the one who's at the side of the road with the cardboard sign that says, have Bible, we'll preach. <laughs> but let's say one of those solid Jesus-following 
Presbyterian churches is like, hey, we want you to come preach. And I talk to them, and we find out we've got the same Christ and everything else. I'm willing to preach there. I'm not going to preach on baptism, though, because I want to agree in the Lord with them, and we have a similar mission, and we can agree in that and work towards that. Yeah, at the same time, if they were in our church, then that would be different. We would want to talk to them. Third, tertiary. And these are the issues that you disagree with and maybe handle with your spouse. And that depends. Like some of them, you just don't want to make a fight. Did Adam have a belly button? If you try to make that a big issue in your family, I hope you just get ignored. Yeah. Yeah. But to summarize, I hear a lot of arguing over doctrine, and we want to be careful how we handle that. We do want to find agreement in the Lord, and that's not simple cold-natured tolerance where we pretend we don't have disagreements. We do work through them, but the goal is not to look cooler or to be self-satisfied or to find some kind of self-pride. The goal is for the other person to understand the Bible better, for, you, for yourself to understand the Bible to, uh, better. It's one way that this could play out that we might not even think of is you may walk away t- and get in your car with your spouse and think, wow, I am so thankful we have Pastor Jimmy to lead us. That Ryan guy, he didn't expound on the text in any way that was the least bit correct. That wasn't the point of the text. He missed every point. And maybe you would be almost right in saying that. I do believe I've expounded this correctly. I am expounding this correctly. But you may be right that I've said something wrong, and you bring it up like that exactly with your spouse. Meanwhile, your spouse was over there in the passenger seat thinking, wow, I really need to heal that relationship I have with this other believer in Christ. What did you just do and how you talked to, that, to your spouse? You didn't help them find what God was trying to tell them to do. In fact, you gave them a different message. Now, instead of that, your spouse listening to the preacher trying to understand the Word of God better, they're just going to be criticizing and internally questioning everything they say. That's the power of what happens when we don't take off pride, when we want to create our own arguments over things that don't matter. We divide and we tear the church. Now, lastly, before we move on to our next section, these ladies are, who are disagreeing, they're reminded they're in the book of life. And I gave a silly answer before, and there might have been a little bit of truth to that, but I think there's some other reasons why this book of life is mentioned. And I'll read it again in us in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. First off, to review, I think that they're reminded that they're a book of life because those with different doctrines or opinions, it turns out, can still be Christians. Because you and I are not the standard of what makes a Christian. It's the grace of Christ, that de- it's the grace of God that determines that. Second, I think it's to remind them of their works and what, that they don't matter. Because when we look at Revelation, that's where we see the rest, we see the book of life coming back up again. Because Paul doesn't really talk about the book of life, but John, he likes to talk about it. And we see that he talks about it in another book. And so we see that there's the book of life, which has a series of names. And we see this other book that has a series of deeds and works. You want to be in the book that lists names. Because you're only, the only merit that you want to have is nothing that you've done in your life. The only merit that we want to have is Christ. So we want just to be in that book of life. So when we have to be right about everything. It makes our gospel sound like we were, our salvation was based on being perfectly right, not on how merciful and gracious God was. So let's move on to a different section. Let's talk about how it's possible to have unity. 
So how can we have unity? First off, let's remember that we have the same Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we see Paul write elsewhere about how God dwells in us, how God's working in us, and we know the fruit of the Spirit, how the first fruit, or the first part of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so we should naturally be loving to one another. We should be naturally loving to other Christians. That should be our natural response. It should be unnatural to us to not be able to agree with someone. So when we read Yodi and Sintiche, we need to remember, that's not normal. That's not normal for the Christian life. The normal reaction is to be able to agree. Joy and I wanting to know another couple Christians a little bit more. We took them up to a restaurant. We all went up to a restaurant together to eat. And at this restaurant, we met this lady from Africa. And so Joy and I, when we go out to eat, we try to pull what we call the Pastor Philip evangelism trick. I don't think we call it exactly that, but we think of Pastor Philip as we do it anyway. And Pastor Philip, if you've eaten with him, he always just casually starts a conversation with the server with, how can I pray for you today? And sees it and just takes it from there. Does that turn into a gospel conversation or not? And so we did that. And the lady that we happened to be talking to, our server that day, she was from across the world, from the heart of Africa. And we don't know anything about her, but suddenly she knows we're Christians and she grabs our hands with these, this vice grip kind of hold. We think we're going to lose fingers and it's great because we instantly find out she's another believer. And you've probably had these same experiences meeting another Christian. What's your natural reaction? Just heartfelt love for that person and excitement to be with them, to have that unity. And it was such an exciting, wonderful prayer, time of prayer with her. And that should be our natural response with others. Next, we have, as we have the same spirit, we have the same Lord. We're called to agree in the Lord. That's not an opinion. That's not a, I hope you would do this. That's a command. So not agreeing is disobedience. Next, we see we have the same mission. When we don't live in the mission together, when we try to live in disunity, we're not wanting to work towards Christ's mission. So even if we have a hard time getting along, we should realize that the mission compels us to live and work together. Finally, we should have the same will. We have the same will by not wanting what we want done, but wanting what Christ desires. And I do want to tie this into joy because we do talk about our series relating to, what is our series called, Joy Invincible? Okay, cool. I see some head nods, so thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't asking that as a rhetorical question. That was a full-on serious one. (laughs) But let's look at Paul and how Paul found uh, joy in this book. We read it earlier in chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul was saying, complete my joy. Paul found joy in other people. And so I think from there and from other places, we're starting to see that our joy isn't some kind of selfish thing. It's something that it's not so much about receiving. It involves giving to one another. And so we see joy is a communal kind of thing. It's a thing for the church to have. We also see that for Paul, it wasn't self-gratification. It was his love for one another. We said that already. But another analogy I wanted to give that ties into that. Last week, Joy and I were talking to this mother, and she had her daughter walking behind her, so we thought. And we were talking for a little bit, and then this mother, she looks behind, and she's like, my daughter's not here. And so she looks to find her daughter, and her daughter has her arms wrapped around this other guy, hugging him tightly. And you know how those child's hugs are. That leg's getting amputated if she holds him for much longer. And 
And the mother looks at her daughter just like, you don't even know that guy. And yet I believe that's how our joy and love should be for one another. Not that we need to cause amputations after service, but that we should be excited to be with each other. There should be a natural joy and wonder there that we can emulate from that example. Are we dividing in our action, or is Christ's love being carried out in our treatment of each other? We don't have too much more. <laughs> so the question I'd like us to ask now is, how can we regain unity? Because we've been talking about having unity, but let's face it, we're looking around the church and we realize we're not all living together in unity. We look at Philippians, Yodi, and Sintiche, they weren't getting along, so how do, are we expected to regain it? First, I think we need to understand what agreeing in the Lord is. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 2 of Philippians. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we see that agreeing in the Lord is far more than some kind of cold tolerance or coexistence. The world might call tolerance and coexistence grand, but Christ calls us to something much deeper. calls us to living with one another, having the same mind. So how do we get this unity? Let's look at a couple places. We, in our verse, or we've talked about already, but there's the help of God. We have the same indwelling spirit. So there's that natural bond we already have with other believers. Second, we have help from God. We have the enabling from God because we have his word. Philippians here is not the first time where we see about two people not agreeing together. We, in every epistle, we see the calls and ability, uh, calls for unity. And so God's word equips us for this. Second, we have the help of man. We see in verse, is it, yeah, verse 3 here. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So you see who Paul's writing to. We see Clement. We see that Yodia and Sintiche, they're not having to figure out their disagreement alone. The church is coming in to help them find peace and resolve this problem. So maybe if you're living at war with another believer, part of the solution is having that Clement, having that person to help you. And notice I'm saying to help you find peace, to help you to bridge this issue, because this could be also misapplied, and you could find someone else, and you're simply just gossiping to them. And that's not the goal. We're not finding a gossip buddy, but someone to help us restore a broken relationship. Second, or no, I think it's like third at this point, of this point. A lot of points. Sorry, it was funny to me. Is that maybe you're not needing to find a Clement. You need to be that Clement. You need to be that person to help someone else bridge that relationship. And so that's you stepping in to help someone find peace with one another. And if that is you, I do implore and say that that's something to do, but to do with wisdom. Because you don't, Proverbs, to reference it again, it talks of, Someone walking down the, someone joining a fight is like someone else, someone walking down the street and grabbing a dog by its ears. What happens when you do that? You lose your hand. And that's not how you need to join that fight. Your goal would be an advisor to help them find peace, to help them understand God's word. Lastly, we would have church discipline. And if that is you, if you have something, a serious disagreement with a believer, 
that could be a right option. And so I would encourage you to look at Matthew 18, 15 through 8. Uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 18. We don't have much time now. But when you would look at it, you notice that your goal in church discipline is never vindication. It's restoration of that other believer. It's a call and hoping that they would repent, that you would have a restored relationship with them. They would have a restored relationship with Christ. And so is that your goal when you're seeking to have peace with one another? I would like to jump ahead and look, go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Here Paul writes to the Ephesians, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So part of regaining unity is realizing that we need to forgive people, that that's part of it. Notice how it says forgiving one another. That's a continuous action. It, ex it means that we should expect people to do stuff that's wrong to us. But you don't just forgive people randomly. It's not like saying good morning to someone. In fact, someone would probably be offended if you walked around just saying, I forgive you to everyone. Right? It implies that someone did something wrong to you. And so we must be, have a heart that wants to forgive. And how do we have a heart that wants to forgive? By looking at the last part of the verse. Even as God and Christ forgave you. So, we should have this heart that wants to forgive. When we, and we don't want to hold grudges. We let them go. That's part of how we get past this unity. When we, do, uh, when we can't forgive one another, it's the same as saying, your sins are small enough for God to forgive, but they're too big for me to let go of. And what a terrible thing for a Christian to say. That should never be in our hearts. We should never want to feel like that. Because first off, it shows that we don't know grace. And secondly, if we hold on to grudges, it shows that we don't trust God either. That we do not trust God or want to obey God. We need to realize that forgiveness is not ignoring an issue. Forgiveness is trusting that God will handle the issue for us. That every, It's trusting God that every single sin is going to be answered on the cross or in hell that God's going to handle those sins in a way that's far more than any trivial way that you and I can come up with dealing with it. And it's far better than trying to divide his church and attack his bride. So, as we saw, forgiveness is part of the Christian life. Christian life is not burning bridges, it's building them. And so if there's a problem between you and another believer, I encourage you to work out that. Start planning on how you're going to bridge that today. Don't walk away saying this was a good sermon or this was a bad sermon. I can't wait for Pastor Jimmy to be back. But walk away and figure out how you're going, walk away planning to apply God's word to your life, not just looking at it, but letting God's word change you. And if you want to solve this with someone right after service, that would be great. But don't necessarily walk away to go up to the person afterwards and say, you know, no one else can get along with you, but I want to choose to love you. Right, like we want to practice wisdom. We want to build the bridge, not burn it down more. I'm not a carpenter, but I think that's bridge that would be burning the bridge, not building it very well. And lastly, maybe you're looking at all this and you're like, I can't forgive one another. I can't forgive other people. I can't let go of this anger, this hate that's inside of me. And if that happens to be you this morning, let's look again at verse 32. You're hearing the forgiving one another part, and the reason you can't forgive one another is because the last part of the verse. Even as God and Christ forgave you, maybe your problem is that Christ, God, has not forgiven you. And if that is your position this morning, I do encourage and implore you to follow after, to turn, to follow Christ, to turn to Him, follow Him. Next week, there's going to be some baptisms. And so if that is you, get in line for a believer's baptism. Let that be part of your testimony of following Christ. Thank you all. I'm going to close this out in prayer, and then you'll be dismissed.
Thank you, Lord, for letting us gather to get to hear your word this morning, Lord. And we pray that we would apply your word to, your, to our life, Lord, that you'd move in us and enable us to do that, Lord, that we would let go of past grudges, Lord, that we would live in the forgiveness that you've had for us, Lord, that we'd be faithful witnesses of you, that people would know you through how we love our brothers and sisters that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We pray for your continued grace and mercy this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.